Welcome to Horror Science. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. Horror Science is a new weekly podcast that will examine the true facts behind your favorite scary movies. Topics covered include biology, psychology, history, case studies, culture, and more. New episodes will be published weekly, with the first week having two episodes. The one you're listening to now, A Nightmare on Elm Street in the Babadook. This episode will be covering A Nightmare on Elm Street. If you haven't seen the film yet, you're obviously still welcome to listen, uh, but it will definitely give you another insight if this is a film that you've already seen and you enjoy watching. Obviously, there are going to be some spoilers throughout the episode, so if you haven't seen it and you want to, go ahead and do that now. A Nightmare on Elm Street was released in 1984 by New Line Cinema and was directed by Wes Craven. The film follows Nancy, her boyfriend Glenn, friend Tina, and Tina's boyfriend Rod. The whole film blurs distinctions between dreams and reality and brings up questions surrounding levels of consciousness. So today we'll dive into, first of all, why do we have nightmares? And within that, what's the difference between a nightmare and night terrors? Then we'll look at why some people actually act out their dreams. And finally, we'll examine if dreaming can really kill you. We'll look at the link between sleep and suicide, as well as a disease called Sudden Unexplained Nocturnal Death Syndrome. This was a disease that director Wes Craven listed as an inspiration for A Nightmare on Elm Street. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Why do we have nightmares? Uh, And the information for this question comes from Lizette Borelli in her article, A Bad Dream is More Than Just a Dream, The Science of Nightmares, which was published by Medical Daily in 2005. And there will be links to all of this information that I referenced throughout the episode on the website, which is horrorscience.com dot x one zero host dot com on the landing page for every episode there'll be a list of these sources so if you want to dive in a little bit deeper or fact check me you have those at your disposal before we really jump into nightmares we have to understand how sleep works sleep is divided into four stages and there's also a stage called rapid eye movement which is referred to as rim This is the stage that's associated with dreams, high brain activity, and temporary paralysis. And that temporary paralysis just means that when you're asleep, you can have dreams and not be in danger of getting up to go drive your car or attacking a bed partner or something like that. It's also important to note that the portion of the brain called the amygdala is relatively active during REM sleep. Um, And that portion of the amygdala plays a role in perceiving and regulating emotions such as fear and aggression. As the other areas of the brain rest, the amygdala forces us to think in symbols, and this is where we get dreams. We've all experienced nightmares, but what is the actual frequency across the United States? So according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, as many as 50% of children between the ages of 5 and 12 have nightmares that are severe enough to disturb their parents. In contrast, only about 2-8% to of adults report nightmares. While adults might have the same nightmare triggers as kids, such as watching a scary movie, unresolved conflict can also contribute to nightmares. Uh, Examples of this type of conflict might be a problem in a marriage, stress over health or over a child, Um, really anything that's making your mind turn during the day can lead to a nightmare. It's important to note also that there are other causes of nightmares in adults. Um, These were found in an unattributed article from the United Kingdom's National Health Service, which listed potential causes of nightmares in adults as existing mental health conditions and taking certain types of medications, such as antidepressants. Now that you understand nightmares, 
uh, we'll dive into what is a night terror? What's the difference between these two terms that are commonly confused? And this information comes from the United Kingdom's National Health Service website. So night terrors occur most often between the ages of three and eight. These happen when someone is in a deep sleep as opposed to the REM sleep where dreaming occurs. So the person who's sleeping might scream, jump out of bed, or kick, um, anything to act out their vivid dreams. And these episodes can last up to 15 minutes and can occur more than once per night. A night terror can be triggered by multiple things. Um, one of the main triggers is a factor that will increase how much deep sleep you have. Uh, so this could be excessive tiredness, fever, or certain types of medication. All of those factors will cause you to sleep more deeply and be more susceptible to night terrors. Fortunately, a lot of people don't remember this episode upon waking, um, and night terrors are usually harmless to the sleeper. My sister actually experiences night terrors. She's 25, so she's a little bit above that age range of 3 to 8, which just goes to show you that uh, that is just a range. It's not the limit. And she's unaware that she has them. Um, she didn't find out about them until she got married and moved in with her husband. And he says that every once in a while, she'll just sit up in bed and start screaming. And of course, it's at first it was terrifying for him, but uh, it never bothered my sister. She doesn't remember these episodes. She just enjoys hearing the stories from her husband. So now we understand what nightmares are, what triggers them. So we're going to look at why some people act out their dreams. Uh, we see this in Nightmare on Elm Street when Nancy is asleep in school and she starts walking through the hallways. Or when Rod is in the jail cell and he acts out the hanging that he's dreaming of. So normally during REM sleep, the brain temporarily denies voluntary muscle movement, which prevents the average person from acting out their dream. However, there is a condition called REM sleep behavior disorder, which is referred to as RBD, and this comes from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So RBD is a parasomnia, which means that it involves undesired events that happen while sleeping. RBD occurs during REM sleep and causes an individual to act out vivid dreams. Uh, this is usually a bit more vivid than nightmares. It can involve shouting, jumping, kicking, punching, swearing, really any large movements. These usually begin very mildly, but increase in violence and activity over time. Frequency can be anywhere from four times each night to once a month. And like night terrors, RBD is usually detected by a sleeping partner. If it's not detected, however, it can result in injury to the sleeper or to their partner. And that's one of the main areas where this disorder differs from the average night terror or nightmare is that it can be potentially harmful to the person that's involved. RBD is also different from sleepwalking and sleep terrors in the condition of the sleeper upon waking. With sleepwalking and sleep terrors, when the person finally wakes up, they're confused. The person doesn't become rapidly alert. Uh, however, in contrast, it's very easy to wake a person with RBD who's acting out a dream. And once that person's awake, he or she will be able to recall the details of their dream very clearly. It's also important to note that people with RBD aren't more aggressive or more violent than other people. It's a medical problem, not a psychiatric disorder. So who's at risk for a REM sleep behavior disorder? It can appear in any age or either gender, but it pops up most often in men in their 50s. 
It's more common in people with neurological disorders, including Parkinson's disease and multiple system atrophy. Uh, like night terrors, there are some things that can increase the frequency of REM sleep behavior disorder. These include alcohol withdrawal, sleep deprivation, brainstem brain tumors, stroke, and the use of certain medications. All of those factors increase the intensity of REM sleep, which increases the vividness of the dreams and therefore the possibility of that sleeper acting out those dreams. There hasn't been a genetic link found to this yet. There is a treatment, um, and that's a medication called clonazepam. It's also important uh, if you are affected or if your partner is affected by this disorder to make the bedroom safer. Uh, that means moving furniture in front of windows, taking out sharp or glass objects, uh, really anything that that sleeper could use to hurt themselves unknowingly in their sleep. It's also important for people affected by this disorder to set up a regular sleep schedule for themselves. Uh, so finally, what A Nightmare on Elm Street really questions is, can dreaming really kill you? So before we jump into the really exciting disease that partially inspired Craven, uh, we're going to briefly explore the link between nightmares and suicide. This comes from a study out of the University of Pennsylvania in 2014, which found that suicides were far more likely to occur between midnight and 4 a.m. than during the daytime or evening. When six-hour time blocks were examined, the frequency of suicide between midnight and 6 a.m. was 3.6 times higher than expected. The principal investigator named Michael Perlis, a doctor and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the director of the Penn Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program at the University of Pennsylvania, stated that the data suggests that circadian factors may contribute to suicidality and help explain why insomnia is also a risk factor for suicidal ideation and behavior. These results suggest that not only are nightmares and insomnia significant risk factors for suicidal ideation and behavior, but just being awake at night may in and of itself be a risk factor for suicide. Also, according to Perlis, another important implication of the study is that the treatment of insomnia may be one way that we can reduce the risk of suicide. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine reports that Almost 10% of adults have chronic insomnia lasting at least three months in the United States. And this isn't the only study that examined the link between nightmares and suicide. There was another one published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine on March 15, 2016. The study was supervised by Dr. Simon D. Kyle of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at the University of Oxford in the UK. This studied 91 individuals who had experienced traumatic events, and within those 91 individuals, 51 were diagnosed with PTSD. The researchers asked subjects to record the frequency and intensity of their nightmares, as well as complete a questionnaire about suicidal behavior, hopelessness, defeat, and entrapment. And the results from this study showed that suicidal thoughts, plans, or attempts were present in 62% of patients who experienced nightmares, and only 20% of those without nightmares. So this data really shows the link between not being able to control your thoughts while you're asleep and feelings of defeat and hopelessness during wakeful hours. So according to this study, it is very possible that the experience of frequent unwanted nightmares can lead one to become more suicidal in their waking moments. Uh, however, it is really important to note the sample size of this study. It only studied 91 individuals, so this isn't definitive proof of the link between suicide and insomnia and nightmares. It's, 
it's just a starting point for farther research here. Uh, so now we get into the big bad question of sudden unexplained nocturnal death syndrome, which is referred to as SUNS. Uh, this information at the beginning of this question comes from Alexis Madrigal, who was writing for The Atlantic in an article titled The Dark Side of the Placebo Effect, When Intense Belief Kills. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, several members of the Hmong ethnic group of Southeast Asia immigrated to the United States. This group was fighting against the government of Laos during the Vietnam War, and although they were backed by the United States, they were defeated by that government. Out of fear of retribution, a lot of the Hmong people came to the United States, where they were divided between 53 cities across the nation. After this migration occurred, 117 male immigrants died of their sleep, of seemingly unexplainable causes. And this was an event that inspired Craven to write the script for A Nightmare on Elm Street. At the time of their death, 116 out of 117 males were healthy. The geographic distance between the men also ruled out the possibility of a new environmental hazard. These men were spread across the country, uh, so it was really difficult to determine a link between their deaths. As a result of this, a lot of papers sensationalized the deaths, but a couple of explanations have been thrown around since then. One has its root in anatomy and genetics, and that's sons. Another focus is more on cultural and psychological factors. So first we'll look into the science of sons, and this information comes from a live science article by Stuart Fox called Can You Really Die in Your Nightmares? Sons occurs when the body doesn't coordinate electrical signals that cause the heart to beat. It's a genetic disease, and it's most common in men from Southeast Asia. And according to Matteo Vada, an assistant professor of cardiology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, the heart can be normal for quite some time, and then it may stop unexpectedly. Usually the heart stops at night, and in Southeast Asia, it once caused more deaths amongst young males than car accidents. So this has been an issue that's been around in Southeast Asia for quite some time. However, it wasn't really recognized by the United States, uh, either medically or within the news, until this wave of immigration came. So why does, why does this happen during sleep? Um, that's because the heartbeat slows down while your body sleeps. Your body's resting and recovering from the day, and this slower heartbeat leads to more pronounced symptoms. Although this disease has been named and recognized now in the United States, there hasn't been a lot of research into it. It's still very hard to detect, and doctors aren't sure of why it occurs more frequently in Southeast Asian men than in others around the world. There's also currently no treatment for sons. No scientific studies have shown a correlation between sons' deaths and nightmares, but there has been a lot of speculation surrounding this possibility, and this is where we jump into the cultural and psychological roots of this disease. And for that, we're going to have to head back to the Madrigal article from The Atlantic. She claims that the given names of sons hasn't done much for treatment or diagnosis. Instead, she claims that it's just a label to make discussing this issue easier. In her article in The Atlantic, she interviews Shelley Adler, the author of Sleep Paralysis, Nightmares, Nocebos, and the Mind-Body Connection. Adler is currently a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. While Adler acknowledges the presence of a genetic cardiac disease among the Hmong people, she argues that what really killed the immigrants was their belief in the spiritual world. And Adler got this idea as she was studying traditional belief narratives at UCLA. 
She was looking into beliefs surrounding sleep paralysis across various cultures. What she found was that members of almost every culture experience sleep paralysis. And this occurs when we regain partial consciousness, but we maintain that temporary paralysis. Thus, we might wake up, see hallucinatory images in our actual environment, and be unable to move. So if you wake up in the middle of the night, um, you, you see your room, you see everything as it should be around you, and all of a sudden you see a stranger standing in the corner. You might try to get up and move, uh, but your legs aren't working, your arms aren't working. That person in the corner isn't really there. You're just stuck in a state that's between sleep and reality, and this is called sleep paralysis. But almost all the cultures studied by Adler associated this sleep paralysis with evil beings. The Hmong people have a particular name for these that I'm going to pronounce horribly incorrectly. It looks like Sog Suam, and it's spelled T-S-O-G space T-S-U-A-M. And I'm going to send a link out on the landing page for this podcast to links from all the sources. Uh, So if you're interested in diving into these issues more or just seeing that word uh, and making your own pronunciation for it, you can find all that on the landing page. And these beings are part of a folklore that are shared by both animist and Christian Hmong in China. So it's not a part of a particular religion, it's part of the region. To collect information on this being, Adler interviewed dozens of Hmong people and they shared their beliefs with her. Uh, One man explained to her, he said, When the Hmong don't worship properly, do not perform their religious ritual properly, or forget to sacrifice or whatever, then the ancestors or the village spirits do not want to guard them. That's why the evil spirit is able to come and get them. So Adler hypothesizes that when the people left Laos following the war, they scattered across the United States. The stress from the migration, unemployment, and isolation contributed to a lack of honor for ancestors. She suggests that these people were working so hard to stay safe, stay alive, stay fed and clothed, that they simply didn't have the time for their traditions any longer. Um, And this, this led to the appearance of the evil being. Farther, once that being appears, a shaman has to be called in to get rid of it. Uh, Due to the spread of the Hmong across the nation, this was impossible for most people. So Adler claims that the death of the immigrants resulted from their beliefs, and she connects the event to the nocebo effect. So you're probably all familiar with the placebo effect, which is where if you think something will benefit you, it most likely will. The most obvious textbook example for this is the sugar pill. Um, And how this works is if you were to go to the doctor with a stomach ache, they could give you a pill with sugar and tell you that it was the real drug and you would believe that your symptoms were improving just by holding that belief that that medicine was going to make you feel better. The nocebo effect is the opposite. If you think that something will harm you, you might actually convince your body that that thing has. The article in The Atlantic gives this example. Doctors have found that patients that are made to feel anxious need larger amounts of opiates after surgery than other people. Adler claims that there might have been a similar effect among the Hmong men. They were under psychological stress as a result of their migration, and their belief in the evil spirit may have been strong enough to kill their weakened bodies. To conclude, Adler makes an argument for local biology. She writes, Since meaning has biological consequences and meanings vary across cultures, biology can operate differently in different contexts. 
In other words, biology is local. The same biological processes in different places have different effects on people. So it seems that Craven might have been right with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, even though Freddy isn't real, Nancy could have been under such psychological stress that she believed this to be real, um, and as a result, unwittingly killed herself. So Craven was inspired by this event. Uh, now you have a little bit better understanding of the true science behind A Nightmare on Elm Street. If you've got any comments or suggestions for future episodes... You can contact me by email or on Twitter. The email is horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter is at horrorsciencepo. And you can also visit our webpage, which is horrorscience.x10host.com. If you liked the episode, you can leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And also the Babadook episode should be available as well. Uh, As a reminder, new episodes will be published weekly. However, since this is the first week, we're going to get two out there. So look forward to next week with a new episode.